Uh, hey, if you have your Bible, grab it and crack it right down the middle to Psalm 122. We continue in our series today, Summer Playlist. If you don't have a Bible or own one, there's one in the pew back in front of you. Um, that is our gift to you. We would love to give you God's word as a gift. Psalm 122. At the conclusion of the reading of the text, I will say this is the word of the Lord. And because we are thankful that God has spoken, we will say thanks be to God out loud. Psalm 122. The word of God for the people of God. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. There, thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, Westside. Good morning. As those of you who know, uh, well, if you don't know, we've been journeying through this, this portion of the Psalms called the Songs of Ascent. Uh, in the last couple of weeks, our series we've been journeying through is called Summer Playlist. And what we've been doing is we've been looking at how the Psalms of Ascent are kind of a picture of our life with Christ today, the physical journey that the people of Israel would take. And so if you haven't been following along, I'm just going to kind of give you a quick recap. A couple weeks ago, the first song of Ascent, the first one on the top of the summer playlist, was one that was actually uh, Psalm 120, was a psalm of repentance. Like, not the greatest thing that you would have on the top of your playlist to start your summer journey, right? To, to actually come low before the Lord and, and repent. And we've seen this map before. We saw that the tribes of Israel would actually go down the Jordan River and then end up at the Dead Sea, which is the lowest physical geographical point on the planet, and they would look up to Jerusalem. And then we saw how repentance was important because we're physically where we were. We were being reminded that we are low and God is high and that we must come before him and we must come humbly and we must repent. And then last week, we looked at Psalm 121, and we looked at the idea of what it was to see God's help in our lives, that God's help was broken down into an acronym for us, that it's heavenly, right, that it comes from outside of ourselves, and because nothing good comes from inside of us as human, fallen human beings. We saw that God's help is eager, that regardless of where we're at in our lives, that he is there and ready to, to be with us and always with us and doesn't leave us or forsake us that it's loving, that he fully knows us, yet fully loves us, and his help reflects that. And lastly, that it's powerful, that the power of God's help comes from the gift and the grace of his son, Jesus Christ, being given for us on the cross, the most powerful help that any of us could ever receive. And so this week, we're looking at Psalm 122. And you guys have probably likely heard this psalm before. You've probably seen it tweeted or on a bumper sticker or whatever on your way to church. You've heard someone say, I was glad, and they said, let's go to the house of the Lord. We've, I've said it here from the microphone at some points at some times on Sunday mornings. But there's a lot more in this psalm that I want to unpack um, because this psalm really uh, focuses around and functions around community and the aspect of family. Um, 
Maybe this will help a little bit. Uh, many years ago, I say many years, some of you are like laughing because this is many years for me. Like 15 to 18 years ago, um, we would travel, my family, my mom, my stepdad, and my brothers and my sister would all pile in the van, and we would drive from Dallas, Texas to Grand Junction, Colorado, which is like the most western part of Colorado that you can get. And the drive took like 18 hours. And I had like six cousins, I still have six cousins, and five of them are girls. And so I always look forward to hanging out with Luke. This is my cousin Luke, a picture of us when we were young together. I don't know if you can tell who's who. I still have a hard time telling that. But so anyways, I was always excited to see Luke, and my mom would say, hey, this is a long drive. Um, You and your brothers need to come up with like some games. You need to bring your Game Boys or your Walkman if your CD, your no-skip CD player dies, and you need something to, to figure out how to use that. Come up with some games and things to talk about and all of that. But once we get through the mountains, we're pretty much there. And so we would drive for 16 hours. We wouldn't stop. We'd go through all these games, the, the trivia cards and playing I Spy and all of that stuff. And we'd come through the mountains and we'd be like, are we there? We're pretty much there. And my mom would say, we're pretty much there, but we still have like two hours to go. In the grand scheme of things, two hours was basically pretty much there. When you're a kid, you don't understand that. But when you get older, I promise it gets better. So we would get there for those last two hours and we would be like, well, what are we going to do now? Well, we can talk about it. We can talk about the rest of the journey and remember who was there. Like last time we went, we got to see Uncle Doug and Uncle Tony and all the cousins, and I get to hang out with Luke again, and we have this opportunity to to hang out with, with our cousins who are now older. Like what did they look like three years ago? It's been a while since we've seen them. What did we do last time we were there? Did we go camping? What meals did we eat? Did we have fun? Did we sing any songs? Did we play any cool games? We were remembering what all of this, what, what was taking place on our journey to Grand Junction. And what we're seeing here in the psalm today is very similar. Look down at your Bibles. They're actually remembering and singing of, of things that have gone past and what they're excited to come forward to do this time. Verse 1, Psalm 122. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together. So they're not just remembering like what they did there, but they're remembering the actual physical place. Like they're remembering the structure of the walls of Jerusalem. And what was cool, like why are they talking about this? Why are they remembering like this building, this wall? Because it represented something greater. Like I don't know if you've ever been, but the walls of Jerusalem are massive and they used to fully encompass the city. And they have like these massive stones that were perfectly carved to mesh together with one another by masons that basically made it look like one giant structure, one being all held together. And they were reflecting on that, that Jerusalem is a city that is bounded firmly together as one unit. And that reminded them of the next thing, the next thing in the next verse. Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord. I don't know if you know this, but Israel was made up of 12 tribes back in the day when they would sing these songs. And these tribes would, would come from all different areas and go through that map. I'm falling. Go through that map like we talked about down the Jordan and down to the Dead Sea but they were singing about remembering who was going to be there. It's not just what it's going to look like, remembering that, that this giant wall, is, this giant city is one giant unit, but the people of God are one giant unit as well, that all these separate tribes are coming together to celebrate at these feasts and festivals together, that this is something that they would journey together, and it, that in and of itself would remind them that the people of God are one unit and so as you can see, this, this psalm is already starting to show us how the, the importance of community and doing this journey together is vital to our lives as Christians here in 2019. 
And what we've said over the last couple of weeks is that the physical journey of the Psalms of Ascent are a picture of our spiritual journey with Jesus Christ. And so if that's the case, what does it look like to journey well? What does it look like to journey well? And so we're going to talk about what it looks like to journey well and how journeying well with family is, is something that is required of us. But we're going to focus around this big idea. A fruitful journey requires journeying with family. A fruitful journey requires journeying with family. We cannot do this thing alone. And so what are we going to talk about this morning? We're going to talk about the way that that fruitful journey, that we journey with family, looks. And we're going to see how the people of Israel, as well as us, when we gather, number one, engage with tradition. Number two, enter with thankfulness. And number three, experience teaching. And so let's get right into the first thing, engaging with tradition. Engaging with tradition. Look down at your Bible. Look down at your Bible in verse 3. Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel. If you don't have your Bible in front of your self, face, hands, lap, whatever right now, I would encourage you to get it out and flip it open to Psalm 122. If you do, I want you to take your highlighter or your pen and circle that word decreed or highlighted if you're using a highlighter and then draw a little line over to the margin and write the word covenant. Write the word covenant. Because that word decree in the Hebrew actually literally translates to covenant. So the tribes of the Lord as was covenanted for Israel. Why is this important? Well, it was covenanted for them because it was a tradition for them to actually journey to Jerusalem multiple times a year for these feasts and festivals, not just for the sake of going because they always did, but because it pointed them to something. It was a tradition. And I feel like in 2019, for my generation at least, for millennials, traditions are probably like the most sour thing you could ever think of. Like for a millennial, it's like, well, we hang up Christmas trees, like every, we hang up, we stand Christmas trees up every single year, but nobody knows why. We put lights up on our house and then we maybe take them down six months later, but nobody knows why. And then we always go to grandma's house. Well, I don't wanna go to grandma's house this year. Why are we going? Well, we always go to grandma's house. Well, that's a dumb tradition. I don't wanna go to grandma's house. We, we sometimes have these traditions that we either don't understand why they are created or we just have them and, and the reason for their creation is long forgotten, but the tradition still stands. Um, this will probably help a little bit. Uh, way not too long ago, on Wednesday, June 12, 2019, for the first time in NHL history, the St. Louis Blues won the Stanley Cup. Raise your hand if you watched the game. Yeah, yeah. I didn't watch the game, but I heard about it. <laughs> Um, so the Stanley Cup, right? Like they, they spend this entire season and all these teams are going at it and there's one winner at the very end and that's kind of how all sports work, but I'm not into sports, so that's eye-opening for me. So the, this, they finally won the Stanley Cup for the first time since they've ever been a team. And as I was reading, I had some other illustration that I was going to use and Pastor Jason and I were texting and it's just like four days ago, so we have to talk about this. But we were looking through articles and reading and realizing that, hey, there are some traditions that like revolve around the Stanley Cup. What are they? Well, some of them are really cool, like, like nobody touches the cup for the entire season, except for like the previous winning team, but no one touches it, like the officials hold it with like white gloves and they won't mess with it because no one is to touch the cup unless they win it because it's not theirs unless you earn it. And then, and then upon actually winning the cup, the team captain or the coach will come and like hoist it above their head, showing that it's something like really great and high above them that they had to achieve. Some people will kiss the cup. And they'll even like drink, some, some teams will like drink champagne out of the bowl that's on the top, which I think is really cool. And then they have, even have this thing called Player's Day with the cup, where like 
every NHL player on that team that won gets the cup for a full day to do whatever they want with it. Like some dudes have like flown overseas and like taken selfies with it. Somebody like, like let their dog eat out of the bowl at the top. And, and it's just super crazy stuff. And those are probably rooted in some superstitions and some weird things. But I had heard about this before, but I, didn't re- I wasn't reminded of it until I read this article. The coolest tradition, I think, is that the name of every single player that won the cup that year is engraved physically into the cup. Every name of every player is engraved on that cup. Why? Is it so Tarasenko can say, hey, let's go check out the cup, my name's on it? No. It's so all of the team and everybody who knows when they look at the cup, this was an effort that was requiring the work of all of these people working together, not just as a team, but as a family that every single person's name was, uh, was on there, not just for the sake of tradition, but to point to the fact that this was a massive achievement that took a lot of work and effort from more than just one person, from a team of people. And we see the exact same thing here in this psalm. We see the people of Jerusalem gathering together, engaging with tradition. But what is that tradition? A couple weeks ago, we kind of looked at Deuteronomy chapter 16 and saw the history behind it, saw the history of why the people of Israel were going to Jerusalem for the festivals and the feasts. But listen to this in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 6 through 7. This kind of opens our eyes a little bit to that. There you shall go, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present, your vow offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herd of flock, And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households. Everybody say households. Households Households in all that you undertake, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. That this wasn't just something that they attended for the sake of tradition, but it reminded them that they did this as a community, that they did this as a family, that they journeyed to the Feast of Booths or the Passover or the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and they would come together and rejoice Not just them on their own, Bob the Israelite going to hang out and have a party at Jerusalem, but Bob and his household and everybody who comes all together rejoicing as one unit. What's it like for us to engage with tradition? If we see it here in God's word and we know that it's a picture of our relationship with Jesus and our journey with him, what's it like for us as Westside, as Poplar Bluffian Christians in 2019 to engage with tradition? Well, the first thing is this. It's like going to church. Raise your hand if you're here this morning. Your hand's not up, you're a liar. I'll see you at the altar. Go to church. Come to church, man. Like, there's no greater way for us to to see that we are coming together as a community than coming together as a community, than having one place that we gather together week after week and hear faithful Bible teaching and and have an opportunity to respond, to to come to the table and remember what Christ has done for us, that we don't do this alone, but we have an opportunity to come and do it together, where we do things like pray for the men and the women between the first two songs and have an opportunity to encourage one another and to pray for one another, to to do things like the Know Him Women's event or or to be baptized and, and have everybody here attend and see that profession of faith. Go to church, man. Going to church is one of the things that we can do that's not just a tradition for the sake of going to church. We live in a culture, especially in the South or the Midwest, wherever you want to say we are on that line, wherever we live in this culture where checking off the box at church is like, like, it's just the first thing we do on a Sunday morning at the beginning of the week. And then we load up in the car and we go to Colton's and we argue about how the service was terrible and the food's too expensive. Like, we don't just come to church for the sake of checking it off a list. We come to church because we're involved in community, that it's something that is valuable to us and it's part of how we engage with this tradition on the journey 
of our spiritual walk with Christ and with others. What else is it like for us to engage with tradition? Well, it's like the sacraments, the first thing being baptism. Baptism, man. If you are a faithful, if you have submitted your life to Jesus Christ and you have had the opportunity to be baptized here in this church, you know that the services are always packed. Jim Bob and his wife and 19 cousins come from the boot heel to come and watch Shelly get baptized because it's a profession of faith. It's a community aspect that a family is involved in. I would encourage you, man, like if you've been coming here for a while and you haven't been baptized, go outside in the Welcome Center. We still have a baptism sheet signed, uh, for you to sign up and put your name on. Talk to Pastor Jason or myself and we can walk you through what the baptism class is like and then you can come and engage in that tradition not for the sake of you just doing it because someone says to do it, but because it's a celebration corporately of what you believe and who God is and what he has done in your life through Christ. Baptism. What's the last thing like for us? These are just three things. There's, there's countless stuff. So we have go to church, we have baptism, and lastly, the other sa- another sacrament we have is communion. Some of you have been coming here for a while, and you're like, I don't know why we do communion every single Sunday. I've only done it in the past like once a year. What's the idea behind coming forward and coming to the table? It's like repetitive, or it doesn't make sense, or I'm not sure why we do this. I don't know of a better symbol and a better way for us to literally engage with what was done with us on the cross than the table itself, where we commune with our Lord Jesus Christ, where we have an opportunity to reflect on the body that was broken and the blood that was shed and consume it and reflect on our sin and how he saved us and that we don't do it on our own. If you've ever been here before, On any Sunday, you see how the aisles are flooded with people one after another as we receive communion together as a family. It's a tradition that we engage with together that points to who God is and what he has done for us as his people. And so that's great. Like We have these traditions that we can engage with, especially here on a Sunday morning. But what's it like in the long term? What's it like in the long run? Yes, I can come to church. I can be reminded of who God is and what he has done. I can be baptized, and I can receive communion. But what does that mean for me in the long run? Well, and that that floods to the application, which is this. Tradition helps strengthen our framework for worshiping Jesus. Tradition helps strengthen our framework for worshiping Jesus. I want to challenge you. Find somebody who has gone faithfully to church week after week and been baptized and faithfully taken communion on a regular basis for like 40 years, 50 years, four or five decades, and ask that person what Christ means to them. And I guarantee you it will be this beautiful description of how God has saved them and how God has caused them to constantly reflect on who he is and what he has done on the cross and our sin and what we are like apart from him. That when we engage with these traditions for a lifetime, They will strengthen and adjust our framework and how we worship Jesus, and it will become much less of how I feel on a Sunday morning and whether or not I want to get up and go to church or whether or not I want to go through the line or or whether or not I want to come forward and pray to, gosh, I can't help but go. I want to go and be in this place because for 40 years I have engaged in tradition that constantly points me to Christ, and I get to do it with my brothers and sisters in Jesus. That is what it does for us. Eugene Peterson puts it this way in terms of a framework in our lives. In his book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. As I entered a home to make a pastoral visit, 
The person I came to see was sitting at the window embroidering a piece of cloth held taut on an oval hoop. She said, Pastor, while waiting for you to come, I realize what's wrong with me. Some of us need to do that. (laughs) I don't have a frame. My feelings, my thoughts, my activities, everything is loose and is sloppy. There's no border to my life. I never know where I am. I need a frame for my life like this one I have for my embroidery. How do we get that framework, he goes on to say? Christians go to worship, man, week by week to a place that is compactly built, a place that gives us a better working definition for life, the way God created us, the way he leads us, so we know where we stand. We engage with tradition, and that tradition strengthens our framework for worshiping Jesus. But we don't just engage with tradition, we also enter with thankfulness. We enter with thanksgiving. Enter with thanksgiving. Right here in verses 3 and 4, it says, Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel to what? What's it say there? To what? To give thanks. To give thanks to the name of the Lord. The people of Israel are entering Jerusalem with thanksgiving. With thanks. Man, I don't know about you guys, but the people of Israel had, had a ton to be thankful for. There was a reason that they made this journey multiple times a year and all throughout their lives. It was because they were thankful to go. They had reasons to be thankful. They were going to the one centralized location where they would be reminded of, through architecture and through community, how they are one people, and God is their God, and they are his people. Going to the one place that, that holds stories and histories and writings about their history as a nation, that they would be reminded of Abraham and how God called him out of a pagan country, And then called Abraham and created a nation out of him, which was the nation of Israel. And then how God raised up Moses. And then afterwards, how God delivered them through Moses from 400 years of slavery in Egypt. And that they would sing this song on the journey, which was written by King David, whose son, King Solomon, built the temple they were traveling to. They had so much to be thankful for. That's why this psalm starts with, I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Are you glad? And I know we prefaced the service this morning that we're not going like, to use Father's Day to like, beat down on dads and get your stuff together, but I, I want to challenge all of us together as a community this morning. Are you glad? The people of Israel had myriads of things to be thankful for. Just this past week, my wife and I went through a drive through and, and I asked the guy, hey, man, how are you doing? He's like, well, okay, I guess. And I'm not going to bash this guy that I don't know. I don't know what's going on in his life. But it, it made me reflect on, on myself and us as a body, as, as believers. We have been given the greatest gift that was ever given to anyone ever in the history of humankind. Jesus Christ, God himself. I can't think of the amount of times where I've had conversations with people or reflecting on myself where people ask, Tyler, how are you doing? I'm like, well, I'm all right. I mean, things have been better. I got stuff that I can complain about and stuff that I'm not happy about and, and I wish things were different here, whatever. Like, I've got a roof over my head, I've got a wife, I've got two kids, and God has given me the greatest gift that I could ever be given from the greatest father that there ever was. Love from himself through his son dying on the cross, the death that I should have. How could you not be glad? I feel like often we are given excuses to ourselves it's a sign from the Lord. We're all supposed to play ball later. A sign from, um, here, there you go. Yeah. 
I feel like we give ourselves excuses, though, for not being glad. And so we're going to talk about three reasons, three excuses that you're not glad, and this is going to be a great time. So the first reason that you're probably not glad is that you're busy. You're busy. Raise your hand if you've ever said the word, I'm busy. If your hand's not up, I'll see you at the altar. Listen, it's like the most go-to word in 2019. How are you, man? Didn't see you at community group. Ah, well, you know, I'm super busy. Hey, we haven't seen you at church in a few weeks. Where have you been? Well, I'm really busy. The people of Israel, if they were in a tribe that was far enough away, they would literally leave their home and everything they owned for weeks and maybe even months at a time to go to these festivals, apart from what they brought with them, their families and their possessions, bringing everything with them, and they went because they were glad. Are you busy? Or is it just something that you say so so you can prioritize your life and place things in the order that you like? Listen, man, the live stream is not for a Sunday morning where you just don't feel like coming. That thing exists for those who physically aren't able to and we want people to join in. I'm not slamming you if you you have an opportunity to to stay home and, and all of that. But guys, if you're too busy, where are your priorities? Where are our priorities if we say that we are too busy to come and gather as one people and be reminded of the greatest news we've ever heard? The greatest news we've ever heard. The second excuse I think we often give ourselves is babies. You got babies? Just give me one of these if you got babies. You got babies, right? Listen, I know what it's like. My wife and I have two kids. One of them is barely five weeks old, and all, the only way it knows how to communicate is through screaming and crying. And we also have a toddler, and she's kind of the same. But there are some words, and they sound really cute. But babies, man, sometimes it's a struggle to, to get them all in the car and to come to church and then make sure that they're not, like, throwing a fit or, like, killing each other in the toddler room back there. Or, or even, like, afterwards, like, well, what are we going to do? we got to go out to eat and spend $90 going out to eat at lunch for four people. And then we go home, and by then everybody's, like, ready to get at each other's throats. The people of Israel had a decree from the Lord that they should travel. And all through those chapters in Deuteronomy where God is telling Moses, hey, give this decree to the people of how they should go, the feasts they should go to, what they should bring, what they should sacrifice, it's bracketed with with the same statement on both sides of all of those chapters. And it's about kids. It's bracketed in Deuteronomy 6-7 and Deuteronomy 11-19. And I'm going to read you this repeated statement in Deuteronomy 11-19. You shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes, right in front of your face. You shall teach them to your children, talking of them when you are sitting in your house, and when you are walking by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. I don't know of any better place to bring your children than to the gathering on a Sunday morning, than to community groups throughout the middle of the week, where you show them what it's like to gather around a community of people that, that, that champions the fact that we are the people of God, that Christ has saved us, that when you bring your kids to Westside, they're not just getting dumped back there and getting babysat and given snacks and maybe getting an occasional diaper change. We're teaching them about Jesus because we want them to journey this journey with you. But I'm not just talking about the journey when you come to, come to Westside on a Sunday morning or wherever you attend. What does your life look like with your babies on Monday, all throughout the week? Are you taking them with you on this journey? If the physical journey of the Psalms of Ascent are a picture of our spiritual journey with Christ, are you taking your kids with you? Are you reminding them of who God is, that he is faithful, 
that he has given us his son because of his love for us. I would challenge you, dads, sit down with your families at night and read God's word. Pray with your wives and with your kids. Moms, write down those scriptures and place them on the mirror in the morning and get those in your heart so when you're talking to your kids, you can train them up in the way they should go with God's word. Teach your kids, man. Bring your kids. The last excuse I think we tell ourselves is that we're maybe bored. And I would just say if you, if you come week after week and you hear the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ and it's boring to you, I would encourage you to examine your heart. I would encourage you to, to ask the Lord to soften your heart and to open your eyes, to open your eyes to the beauty of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that you were once dead and now you were alive. What could be less boring than that? Are you bored? I would, examine, I would challenge you to examine yourself. So we're entering with thankfulness. And we've examined on why we're glad. Why, why, why is being glad and why is being thankful important for us? Well, being thankful reminds us that we've received what we can't give ourselves. Being thankful reminds us that we've been given a gift. What is that gift that we've received that we can't give ourselves? And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy and because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. This is the gift that we have been given. And when we acknowledge that and understand that, I don't know if there's any other response other than entering gladly with thankfulness to know that we were once dead and that the most loving Father of all history and humanity reached down into the depths of our death and pulled us up and made us alive. Are you thankful? Are you reminded of the gift that's been given you? So we're engaging with tradition. And when we gather, we're also entering with thankfulness. And that leads us to the last thing. We're experiencing teaching. We experience teaching. Look down at verse 4 again in your Bible. To which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. There, thrones for judgment were set. The thrones of the house of David. When I came across this passage this week, um, this portion, these verses, I was a little confused. I was like, great, there's thrones there. What do I do with that? And as I was continuing to read, realizing the thrones of judgment, they weren't these like archaic thrones that were, that were from long past. These were active thrones of judgment that Levitical priests like sat in and made decrees and gave judgments for cases in those days. And so it was really interesting to read a little bit more, and you can see it found in Deuteronomy chapter 17, that people would actually have an issue with, like, I don't know, my neighbor's dog jumped across, my lo- jumped across onto my property, and then I hit my neighbor's dog, and then it ran back over there, but it bit my daughter, and so now she's sick. What do we do about this problem? Like, I have no idea this is so complex. Well, 
they had a, they had a system for that and it involves these thrones of judgment. Look at, look at the screen, Deuteronomy 17. Does that have that one on there? I do. If in any case arises requiring decision between one kind of homicide and another, yuck, and one kind of legal right and another, or one kind of assault and another, any case within your towns that is too difficult for you, then you shall arise and go to the place that the Lord your God will choose. And you shall come to the Levitical priests and to the judge who is in office in those days, and you shall consult them, and they shall declare to you the decision. Then you shall do according to all that they direct you, according to the instructions that they give you, and according to the decision which they pronounce to you, you shall do. So, like, we have this crazy situation in our tribe, like, this guy's dog jumped on my property, but then I hit him, and then he bit my daughter and ran back over there, and my daughter's sick, and I don't know what to do. Well, they don't just have this issue and go to their people, and if their people can't solve it, and their tribes can't solve it, then they just get over it. They actually take it with them on their journey to Jerusalem and take it to the higher Levitical priests. And whatever that priest would tell them, like, hey, you need to put the dog down and you need to give your daughter a Band-Aid, like, they, would, they wouldn't just hear that and be like, oh, that's great, he said, you need to put your, the Band-Aid on your daughter and put the dog down. They would actually take that information with them back to their tribe and apply it, and that would be a rule that would stand for the future. What's that like for us? What's that like for us? Weak after week, we come and hear faithful Bible teaching and preaching from God's Word. And we collect this information, and then we have an opportunity to go back to our homes, back to our workplaces, and apply that. How are we applying it? Are we even applying it? We just went through Ecclesiastes, and we came up with this equation. We heard this equation that, that something plus something equals wisdom. It was information plus application equals wisdom. Are you coming and hearing the words of God and applying them to your life? You've heard this illustration before, but there's a story of a preacher who constantly preaches like four or five weeks in a row, the same message, the same text, and the same points. And then someone from the church comes up and says, hey, are you going to preach anything new? Like, We've heard the same thing over and over again. His response was, oh, uh, yeah, eventually. Have you applied what's been taught? And I feel like we are that way. Sometimes we are that way when it comes to we, we constantly hear direction and guidance from God's word, and then we take it, and, and we don't do anything with it. Some of us have been coming to Westside or been believers for decades and declare the name of Jesus, but you're still doing the same thing on Saturday night, week after week, and there's no fruit to show repentance or a sanctificating path in your life. Some of you come week in and week out, and you, and you are introverted and, and, and somber, wondering why nobody likes you or wants to talk to you. Have you made a conscious effort to step out and go to community groups? Have you made an effort to come regularly on Sunday morning and get to know some new families? What are we doing with the information that's given to us? Information are like directions. Information's like, well, directions are information. Like if someone were to go to Italy, look at that, that's pretty. If someone were to go to Italy, like you were getting ready to go to Italy and you've never been before, it would probably be very unwise for you to go to Italy without consulting somebody who's gone first without consulting somebody of like, hey, where do I pick up my bags? Uh, how do you speak Italian? Uh, what do I, what's the currency exchange rate over there right now? Uh, where should we stay? What kind of vehicle transportation should we take? It would be very unwise for you to just jump over there and try to figure it all out. And you don't have to. Not in our walk with Jesus. We've been given directions. The best directions for the journey of life are found in the word of God. 
The best directions for the Word of God, or best directions for the journey of life, are found in the Word of God. Ladies, just a couple of weeks ago, we had, I'm sorry, just a couple of years ago, that's a big time difference. A couple of years ago, we had our first Know Him conference, and, and on, the, on the night of the conference, we actually revolved around Psalm 119, and we said that your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path, that it's direction for guiding my life on this journey, that I'm journeying with Christ. It also says in Psalm 119 that I have hidden your word in my heart so that you won't sin against me, so that I won't sin against you. That the word of God is a direction, it gives directions for us. And so if the physical journey of the Psalms of Ascent are a picture of our spiritual journey with Christ, we've unpacked a little bit on what it looks like to journey well. But I want to conclude with this. This is a picture of Eliad Kipchoge. Kipchoge, I think is actually how you say it. If you know this guy, awesome. If not, I'll tell you a little bit about him. He is the fastest marathon runner in the history of marathon runners. He's, he's the fastest man who can run 26.2 miles, the fastest. And on March 16th, 2017, May 6th, I'm sorry, 2017, he attempted to do something that no one's ever done before. He attempted to run a marathon in under two hours. In under two hours. I don't know if you guys know what that's like, but that's like a four minute and 15 second mile for 26, that's like running from here to Dexter in under two hours. And although he did not finish in under two hours, he finished at two hours and 25 seconds, which is still, I mean, that's a second per mile, and that's a monumental achievement. He set world records and stuff and all of that, but he didn't do this by himself. It took like two to three years of preparation with people at Nike making him special shoes that you cannot buy, with people in laboratories giving him like Skin, like, I don't know what it's called, like snakeskin fish scales to like put on his legs that made him more aerodynamic. That, like he had these, these chemists who were testing his blood to see how his body processed protein and burned calories. And so he had this special juice that was Elliot juice that he would drink and that every mile it would give him a boost of energy that his body was specifically designed for. All of these people coming together. And there was another group of people. Pacers. And I don't know if you know what a pacer is in running, but it's somebody who does that. They just set the pace. And Elliot had four or five different waves of pacers who would rotate and jump out in front of him for three or four mile stretches. And they would actually stand in front of him and break the wind in front of him to actually make it easier for him to run and improve his time. Someone has gone before us on this journey. And I feel like often we, we feel as though this journey is something that we have to do by ourselves. That I sit on the floor in my house with my Bible open and I pray and it's just me and God. Those moments are fine, but if your entire faith is wrapped up in that, that's not an option that's given to us as believers. We are given community for a reason. It helps us with engaging with tradition together. It helps us to to experience teaching and to enter God's house with thankfulness and to go this journey with thankfulness. There is only one person who was ever even given the option to go that journey alone. And it's Jesus. In those moments on the cross where all of your sin and all of my sin, past, present, and future, were laid upon Jesus Christ, God's word says in Habakkuk 1.13 that the eyes of God are so pure that he can't look on sin and that he won't even tolerate evil. And Jesus cries out, 
Psalm 22, the first verses on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And as we sing, when we sing how deep the Father's love for us, the Father turned his face away. Jesus is the only one to experience what journeying that life alone is like so we wouldn't have to be alone. Jesus was alone so you wouldn't have to be. I'm going to stand and leave you with some questions as we've done over the last few weeks. If a fruitful journey requires journeying with family, how do we journey well? Well, Here are some questions that you can ask yourself throughout this week and maybe even apply and answer a little bit. Number one, what excuses do you have for journeying alone? Are you journeying alone? Ladies, the Know Him Conference is Friday, June 21st. Go. Sign up. We still have spots out there. And, and engage and take, take people along with you on this journey. Get around other women who love God's Word, who want to see God's Word and, and allow it to guide them in their lives to be better moms, wives, and Christians. Husbands, are you going alone? Men, find other men. Meet with somebody regularly and open God's Word. Pray with them and ask for prayer. The second question, who are you taking with on your journey? Who are you taking with you? If you're a mom or a dad in here, are you leaving your kids behind? Are you teaching them about Christ's love for them? Are you teaching them about how we are a family unit and that we worship God together, not individually? And lastly, what have you learned on your journey? And how are you applying it? Are you coming here week after week and hearing truth from God's word and doing nothing about it? I've got news for you, man. If you love Jesus, the same spirit that raised him from the dead is alive inside of you. And that helper helps you accomplish the work and makes you more like Jesus. So this morning, as we come and we respond to the table and we are reminded as we engage with this tradition of the body that was broken and the blood that was shed, may we be thankful May we leave and apply this to our lives and become more like Jesus. Would you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and for your son. Thank you that Jesus was alone for those moments so we don't have to be. Thank you for reminders like communion where we can come and examine ourselves and be reminded of the price that was paid on our behalf. I pray that you would remind us that we cannot do this journey alone. Help us with these things. We ask it all in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You can come forward and respond in communion as you feel led.